Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. Oh boy, wow, doppelganger, I guess that makes me your other co-host, Matt Bernico, for the week. It's a, it's a freaky Friday this time. That's supposed to be next Friday, good Friday. Nope, Dean, it's not a freaky Friday, it's an April Fool's. Oh, I gotcha. You got oh me. my god, you must be so embarrassed right now. I am so embarrassed. If you can see my face, it's red as heck. <laughs> That's right, you thought you were me for a second, oh boy. Uh, well... April 1st has come and gone, I guess. So it's not really a great April Fool's, but it was one just <laughs> just the same. It's an April 7th goof. That's really uh, the long game, I think. That's right. We're, we're not on this show. We're not bound by capitalist holidays like April Fool's Day. We do April <laughs> Goof's Day on uh, on the 7th. And that's better, I think. <laughs> that's right. April Goof's Day on the 7th. Mark your calendar for next year. I know I'm going to so that I don't get got again. <laughs> You can't. You never, and especially with me around, you never know when it's coming. That's right. April Goose Day, that's the worst part about it. It does move around the calendar, so it's kind of like you never really know until the trap is sprung. Yeah, that's true. You never know until the trap is sprung. You know, speaking of uh, holidays that move, let me tell you about a cool one that you're going to love, Dean. It's called Holy Week. What's up? Holy Week is right, a, right. It's a movable holiday within the Christian tradition, and that's exciting. You know, some of them uh, are really fixed, like December 25th. That's always Christmas. But when it's Holy Week, you never know. It's always coming at you from every which direction. That's right. That's because you're getting ready for the big April Fool's joke, which is the resurrection. (laughs) That's right. That's right. All right, folks, you heard it here. Well, I mean, I guess you kind of did. You kind of heard it here. Uh, We're getting close to the end of Lent. Uh, This coming Sunday marks the beginning of what Christians, or at least some of us, call Holy Week. Uh, Holy Week is the time in the Christian calendar when we mark Jesus's big entrance into Jerusalem uh, with Palm Sunday, which is this coming Sunday. And then uh, you kind of go through the week through, you know, Jesus's last days with the passion, the crucifixion. And finally, you get the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, Spoiler alert. uh, Maybe you didn't know. Uh, But anyways, yeah, Holy Week has got a lot going on. But it does mean that Lent is almost over and we can stop thinking about Lent, which is great. We need to stop thinking about it probably soon. I don't have any ideas about Lent left. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Uh, running on empty. Me too. It's been a lot. Uh, this one felt extra long. I don't know if for some reason it was or it's just uh, the, the the moment in time, but it's been a long Lent. Uh, and this time around, as we are sort of getting around the bend here, we're going to focus on kind of an interesting story that comes out this time of the liturgical calendar, which is Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem. So we already we already did the crucifixion way too early. And so now that's right. We are grasping at straws. But this one, I think, is actually pretty relevant to the podcast, uh, believe it or not. So a lot of Christians make a lot out of this moment in the Lenten story. And for good reason, there are a lot of strong political themes going on in the story. When Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem, it's kind of like a pinnacle moment of a lot of different themes. And specifically, there are some interesting themes around Palm Sunday as the kind of liturgical celebration of that story. Uh, Lots of symbols around rejecting political power. And the discourse around it is all very interesting. It's kind of a mixed bag. I found it to be very, like, politically motivating as a weird young Christian person at one time in my life. Um, And uh, there's a lot of interesting talk, too, about things like performance and activism and street theater all tied up in this. So we're going to get to all those themes as we go. But uh, Matt, I don't know, probably not everybody's a church person or knows this particular Bible story. So why don't you give us the rundown? What's going on in Palm Sunday? What's going on when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? Yeah, let me tell you. Um, Okay, I'm going to read the Bible here. Get ready, everybody. Yeah. Well, uh, this is from Luke 19. You can find this story, though, in all four of the Gospels. This is one of those big ones. So you know it's important when it's in every single one of them. You know <laughs> yeah, it's they true. All, you know uh, it's real. They all figured this one was going to make it into the big book in the end. All right, so this is Luke 19. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. You <laughs> yeah. can use that whenever you, you need want, a thing, by the way. And you, just can, and you see it, you can say, the Lord needs it, and you can take it. <laughs> when, when you're walking around the grocery store, you just grab that uh, a little, you know, a few items, and you can say, look, 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 the Lord needs it. Don't worry about it. You're at Costco, and you want a second sample of the mini pizza. You say... 
The Lord needs it. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you picking up that extra toothpick? Okay. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? Man, Jesus saw this coming. They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. (laughs) They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. If even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Woo. Jesus, uh, he's doing a lot of things in this one. The disciples, they're getting they're getting a donkey for him. Jesus is kind of cursing Jerusalem. Yikes. Um, right after this is actually uh, when Jesus does cast people out of the temple. So Jesus, he pulls into town on a donkey, which means something. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, he says a mean thing about Jerusalem. <laughs> and then he immediately goes to the temple and he throws a bunch of people out of it. So <laughs> it's a pretty wild day, a pretty busy one. A lot of things <laughs> going on for sure. The talk of the town. Jesus is not here to like, I don't know, tell people to like pray a silent prayer and kind of get out of their lives. He's kind of doing something a lot different. <laughs> so all that to say, Christians on the left have taken, I think, this piece, this part of the story and kind of interpreted it in some really interesting ways. And I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know. Yeah, like, like you said at the very beginning of the show, Dean, some very political, interesting politically motivating ideas in it. Um, I don't know. Uh, th- there's a... There's a sense in which um, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, he he's a king unlike other kings, right? Um, there's sort of a, a backwardsness to it. Yeah, exactly. There is a backwardness to it. And I think that is what attracted me to it as like a young Christian person trying to figure out uh, what it means to have sort of a, a different political reading of the text. Um it is a weird passage. Uh, when you're in the Catholic Church, like when I was growing up in the Catholic Church, uh, it's really fun on Palm Sunday because the priest gets his big palm and he puts it in the water and he throws water around everybody and you got to sit in the splash zone. And when you're a little kid, you want to get as wet <laughs> as possible. It's just a it's a great time. Um, but, you know, as I got older and uh, especially when I had kind of an evangelical detour where I got really into the Bible, um, I thought there are so many interesting little um I don't know, interpretive like keys to the the story that weren't very obvious when, you know, you're just concerned with uh, getting all that good holy water. So uh, the the maybe most accessible text that brought this out for me at first was like probably many others. (laughs) This wild book, Jesus for President by Shane Claiborne, who is um, an interesting guy. He's out there still doing his thing. Um, He wrote this book, Jesus for President, around the time of the uh, Obama election. Is that right? Like right before 2008 in the midst of Bush years. It's a Bush era text for sure. So like right before Obama got elected, for example. okay, well, maybe. okay, let's get back to the story in a minute, but we we should set the state the stage here a bit. Right. It's like the the late aughts, the late 2000s. And George Bush is the president. Christians don't know what to do, uh, like progressive Christians, because there's this big wild evangelical guy uh, destroying Iraq and Afghanistan. And out comes somebody like Shane Claiborne and a handful of lots of other people who were kind of doing this like really unique, like biblicist Christian anarchism. So, you know, there's a long tradition of Christian anarchism. And a lot of the time it like, is kind of wild, right? Like if you think about like Ammon Hennessy, a guy who was associated with the Catholic worker movement, his Christian anarchism is extremely bizarre. Or like even Dorothy Day, her Christian anarchism is motivated by lots of things, the Bible for sure, but you know, Catholic social teaching and so on. Uh, this kind of stuff in the late 2000s was really motivated by, I think a lot of those evangelical uh, principles, right? A certain view of the Bible, a certain view of biblical authority, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I thought that was very interesting as like an 
18 year old <laughs> at the time. And uh, that's probably when you're like the ripest for those that like weird confluence of uh, an extremely confident uh, <laughs> worldview and like a sort of safely um, alternative political culture. Uh, so anyway, Shane Cleburne wrote this book, Jesus for President, where he makes this argument in that kind of cultural space that the Bible has this idea of Jesus as kind of like, you know, the the topsy-turvy um, God who comes into the world and like messes up all our categories. And he has this reading of um, of this passage. And I should say, too, it's Shane Claiborne That's and right. Chris Hawes, the other guy. But I don't know. Shane Claiborne is like. <laughs> a higher profile, I guess. But they wrote the book together. Who knows who wrote this paragraph I'm about to read. Anyway, uh, this paragraph, I think, really kind of got me thinking for the first time about all this stuff. So they say this. Jesus rode a donkey into Passover. Remember that Passover was the anti-imperial Jewish festival during which the Jews celebrated their ancestors coming out of Egyptian slavery. With Roman soldiers lining the street, Jews gathered and waved palm branches, symbols of resistance to the empire. Passover was a volatile time, often marked by riots and bloodshed. Recall that Antipas killed thousands of Jews in the streets at the festival. When Jesus rode a donkey into the festival, it was a lampoon-like street theater at a protest. Scholars call it the anti-triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Imagine the president riding a unicycle in the 4th of July parade. Well, uh, kings did not ride donkeys. Uh, they rode mighty war horses accompanied by an entourage of soldiers. So here is Jesus making a spectacle of violence and power, riding in on the back of an ass, and a borrowed one at that. And it's all very uh, sort of, I don't know, safely radical yeah. language, I think you could say. But uh, it, it does actually pull out in a really accessible way some of those political overtones, right? That um, when Jesus does this really wild thing, it is happening, it's true, at a super politically volatile moment. Um, it is also happening right in the, the middle of a festival that commemorates people throwing off their oppressors and moving to a new place and being a unique people. Um, there's also the backdrop of like, you know, the failed Maccabean revolution that happened right before Jesus, all that kind of stuff is kind of in the air. And so then Jesus comes in, uh, announcing this like different kind of authority or kind of parodying, uh, Rome's military authority in these really interesting and, and complicated ways. So, uh, I still have a, a soft spot in my heart, I guess, for that passage, <laughs> just because it like unlocked a piece of my brain that was like, whoa, there's something wild going on in the Bible. Yeah, totally. Let's talk more about the book here for a hot second. So Jesus for President is a very wild book. And like you said, Dean, it's like uh, it is safely radical. That's maybe a good way of putting it. And we can talk about maybe some of the downfalls of that in a minute. But uh, in prep in preparation for this this episode, I did look through um, my copy of Jesus for President to find this particular passage. And I have completely forgotten how cool the book the book is, like as a sort mm -hmm. of an aesthetic piece. It's all sort of like very zine aesthetic, and then everything's cut yeah. out letters and like sort of like things photocopied on the pages. <laughs> I I've like I think I've spent a lot of time like sort of scoffing at this book in my in my more mature adult years, <laughs> but uh, looking back at it, I can totally see why I was into it. I think it's very cool. Uh, it looks cool as a book, and there's something you know the uh, the safe radicality of it, especially during the. Uh, the late Bush years, the early Obama years, I think there's something like very sort of appealing as a line of flight away from uh, evangelicalism or conservative Christianity or something. So the book has a, a pretty, um, I think there's a good purpose to it. It's just uh, maybe I would uh, do some things differently in it myself. That's okay. Yeah, I, I haven't read it since I was probably 18 or 19, but I guess if I looked at it again, I probably, there are like <laughs> young teens that I could imagine recommending a book like that to for sure. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. OK, well, we can talk about maybe some of the some of the interesting like street theater connections in a minute. But I guess let's talk about like what's happening in this particular passage from Shane Claiborne. Maybe I should have done that before I talked about how cool the book looks. <laughs> That's OK. Whatever. Um, OK, so this particular theme that Shane Claiborne is picking up on here, that Jesus is sort of this like countercultural force. He is a guy who's like playing with the political themes of the day and uh, subverting them. That's a theme that I think Shane Claiborne picks up on a lot in the Bible. Um, he's always kind of pulling this out where people, uh, the prophets or whoever, they're always kind of finding the, you know, the political powers of the day sort of like hollow um, and unauthentic or, I don't know, bad <laughs> to say the least. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and like trying to turn them on their head. That's kind of like one of Shane Claiborne's, I think, key observations about biblical texts. And I don't know, I think he's probably right about a lot of them. Um, the way that this actually works out, though, in like the weird sort of like um, this like weird sort of milieu of like Christian left during this time, though, I think is far more mm-hmm. interesting and complicated. Um, because what you get is like this um, uh, when when people talk about the uh, you know the topsy turvy world of Jesus or the, the the upside down world kingdom of God or what this passage means when Jesus kind of subverts the imagery of a king riding in um, on a donkey rather than like a war horse or whatever, you get these like senses in which uh, political power is something to be like kind of scoffed at or rejected outright or to be something that like that you're so suspicious of that you'd kind of like think that politics is maybe about something else (laughs) other than power. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of a problem. There's sort of there's something cool here, I guess, for sure. Right. Like that, that what Shane Claiborne is picking up on here is is true and is right. I think is interesting. But I think the way that uh, the particular like strain of like the the biblicist Christian anarchist or whatever uh, of that like that early two thousands period like what they do with it I think ends up being kind of politically weak <laughs> and limp I don't know uh, you know what it means is like you should live in the world in a way that uh, makes fun of it uh, rather than tries to like change it or something um, and that's sort of a bummer I think yeah I think that is right I mean like I said I have a real soft spot for this book and for that that time in my life for sure and I don't want to be like too crabby about it because it's you know I don't know <laughs> I, I guess I owe it something and I want to sort of honor that and it's cool um, but it's true there are these limitations that are present and I think you kind of hit on the biggest one which is how it understands the the kind of lesson of these things. So like, for example, Jesus comes in and he is sort of parodying Roman imperial power. And I think that is totally true and, and right. Uh, and Jesus then goes on to, you know, flip the tables. So there's something kind of more active happening there too. And I guess the question is sort of, what do you take away from these kinds of radical moments where Jesus is like doing something performative? And I think it's, you know, it would be fair to say, and we too should do some kind of performative wild stuff to kind of, you know, provide some alternatives or (laughs) create a bit of a a parodic um, theater piece. And we could talk more about the utility of that in a moment. But uh, what the value of of those things in general are, are not to sort of say we've kind of, you know, we've consumed the spectacle and learned the lesson that, yeah, the Roman Empire is something we can make fun of but rather to say, well, what happens when you do kind of come to that realization? Like, what's step two after you're like, okay, uh, R- Roman imperialism can be challenged or there's this kind of way of making fun of it in this upside down way. And I think it's more helpful to sort of see Jesus as like clearing a path or opening up some space that is like foreclosed by all these imperial myths and stuff like that. Uh, and the question then is kind of what do you do in that space? And if you just stay at the event of kind of clearing the path, then you'll, you know, <laughs> you won't know where to, like, take a few steps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is very important if you want to change uh, an unjust political system. Like, somebody has to be able to uh, fill in that space. And if it's not uh, if it's not you who's inspired by that topsy-turvy Jesus moment, then it's going to be somebody else who does not care about right. it. In, in, in the work of, in, in this book, uh, Jesus for President, Shane Claiborne towards the end lays out some things of like, you know, what would the world look like were we to kind of like pick up this uh, style of politics, this understanding of power, this understanding of Jesus, like what would, what would it look like? And, you know, like, I don't want to cast aspersions because nothing he says is bad. I don't think it's like harmful in any way, or is it even, I mean, it's, I think in a lot of ways it's desirable. It's like, you know, it's, um, it's building community. It's building solidarity. It's like, um, you know, doing sort of like the, the sort of the, the stuff that you might call like lifestyle anarchism or something. Um, food's not food, not bombs. You feed people and that's all very good stuff. Like there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Um, but it does, it does not like fundamentally, uh, call into question the power that is right. It's still like, you know, it exists alongside capital without really causing any problems for it whatsoever. So I guess what I'm here to say is like, um, you know, the, like, like you're saying, Jesus opens up a space here and makes you kind of like think about things differently, but like, what's the next step? And uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think the next steps that are in Jesus for president are kind of wanting <laughs> for sure, which is fine. I mean, whatever, <laughs> but um 
but uh, there, there's also a way you can turn this particular like understanding of Jesus as being like someone who's just like who's sort of like parroting power that can get trans like transformed into like a rejection of power altogether. And I think that would that's mm-hmm. bad. That's a that's an impulse to maybe stay mm-hmm. off. Well, we should return to the question of power maybe toward the end of the episode, but I think it's worth spending some time kind of parsing out even a little bit more just this this moment or this event, though, because I guess if the limitation of Jesus for president is that it can't really get beyond the spectacle, the the sort of strength of it is that it does kind of do a good job <laughs> making the spectacle, you know, uh, yeah. visible or accessible. And I think it's actually something we don't really talk about much on this show, but there is uh, a long, very interesting tradition of kind of political parody or political street theater that I think both Matt and I have kind of like a deep soft spot for, a deep love for. Um, When we were like first becoming friends, I remember uh, the two of us like being like, have you heard of this person? Yes. Have you heard of that person? Yes. (laughs) It's all like very fun uh, activists out there doing some really wild stuff. So it might be worth just spending some time talking about that theme of radical street theater. Um, So just to kind of put us back in perspective here, what I really want to say is if we can read Palm Sunday as a moment of radical street theater, we can maybe also understand that kind of in dialogue with like contemporary forms of of radical street theater and just kind of figure out like what would it be like to, to both see Palm Sunday as in kind of resonance with these, these wild events that have been going on uh, in our own time and then vice versa to kind of figure out, well, what would Palm Sunday open up for us in the same way that these other things do? So, Matt, uh, let's just start at the top. Maybe uh, what's one of your favorite examples of radical street theater? Yeah, well, let's let's start in the 60s with some French guys and then we'll kind of work our way chronologically forward. <laughs> yeah, OK, sure. Uh, it wouldn't be an episode of our podcast <laughs> unless we did start in the 60s with some French guys. That's the way that's what we like to do things here in this <laughs> podcast. So in the 1960s in France. It was a wild time to be there, apparently. Uh, There's a group of uh, dirty political theorists. <laughs> I imagine them as dirty in my head. I have no idea. Maybe they were. <laughs> I imagine them as very clean. Really? Oh, man. You never. You could never tell with these guys, I guess. There's a sort of a group of sort of like artists and philosophy kind of people, grad students, all kinds of like, you know, um, very interesting intellectuals. Uh who kind of gather together under this banner called the Situationist International. And uh, the Situationist International, they stem from another sort of art group called the Letterists. It's, it, that's not important for the story, <laughs> but the Situationists um, are, let's see, the, the person who's like really important, uh, the sort of like as the, the person who's really important as the sort of theoretical mind of this movement is this guy named Guy Debord. Um, there's another one called Raoul Vanayam, someone we've, ta- we've talked about a few times on the show, um, who wrote a big book about, uh, it's called The Revolution of Everyday Life, and also a book called The Brethren of the Free Spirit. Um, but uh, Guy Debord, he wrote this book called Society of the Spectacle, and it is a pretty wild book. Um, it's very hard to read. It's French theory at its worst and best. Um, <laughs> but it had this like huge impact on the... Uh, I guess, on activists in France. So the book is kind of a critique of Marx, honestly, but uh, basically the the big the big leap the book makes is that, uh, you know, our, our political economy kind of has been, um, pre, it's now preceded by, like, the appearance of political economy. The appearance of society uh, precedes the existence of our society, um, and that's kind of a crazy idea. But, you know, uh, he's writing at a time like where uh, TV is sort of new and uh, it's like streaming into people's houses in this kind of radical way. And the advertising world is out of control and um, all kinds of things like that are happening, kind of booming around him in France. Um, and he's he's making these observations about the ways that, uh, that capitalism trades uh, in, in images and in signs and symbols and ideas just as much as it does trade in like actual like, you know, things that you produce. Um, so this guy, Guy Debord, and the rest of these other, like, French folks, um, they were like, well, what if there are ways we could hijack the spectacle? Like, what if we could kind of, like, find ways to bend all of, like, the mass media to say something more interesting or more true, um, or, or funny (laughs) that would kind of, like, um, pull at the strings, uh, or pull at the seams of capitalism, 
So there's this this word that kind of comes out of these conversations. That's a French word that I'll say wrong. Uh, that's okay because I'm not French. And the word is detournement. Um, it means to like to hijack, to turn, to turn against. Hijack is probably the best way to put it in, in the United States, though, in, or in English. Um, mm-hmm. So what they would do was, you know, they would take uh, like a, a comic strip and and change all the words so it was about capitalism. Uh, or famously, uh, there's a movie that uh, one of these folks made because uh, well, Deboer himself was a filmmaker, and uh, some some of the other situationists were also filmmakers. And they would, um, anyways. There's a, a sort of famous example of detournement uh, from the situationists uh, called uh, in a movie called "Can Dialectics Break Bricks," which is a great title. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a it's a kung fu movie, um, and sort of all of its uh, you know problematic <laughs> appearance. Uh, but all of the subtitles have been changed to be sort of like um, about uh, about socialism, about Marxism, about the like French Communist Party, you know, all these kind of like very inside baseball jokes um, about uh, French left politics at the time. And uh, I've I got to tell you, it's on YouTube. You can watch it. I've tried to and I don't really understand any of it, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> but anyways, um, they kind of came up with these ideas about hijacking culture. Um, it, not the not the first example, I think, probably ever of street theater because Jesus did it before them. And I'm sure there are people between them <laughs> for sure. Um, but, you know, it's people who are thinking about the ways that media intervenes in capitalism while also being created out of, you know, sort of a capitalist political economy. And the ways that you can kind of hijack those things and turn it against itself and how that becomes a very interesting thing. Um, so all that to say, you know, street theater has a long history that precedes the 1960s in France for sure. Um, but the there's a sort of an interesting intervention um, that these uh, that these weird French folks made uh, to use media, to, to use capitalist media against capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that theme of detournement is so interesting and fun. It kind of comes around, I don't know, you know, like all themes, they, they're around long enough to be sort of commercialized or watered down or whatever. So you can find lots of examples of it. Maybe the most famous one that people love to love or hate is the magazine Adbusters, um, which was also very popular when Shane Claiborne's book came out. <laughs> sort of a, a perfect. Oh, There's kind of a similar energy, honestly, between those. Two for things. sure, for sure. Well, and uh, and G's magazine is actually kind of not not completely related to all that, but not totally yeah. uh, apart from it either. Anyway, um, a lost world to time. But uh, <laughs> Adbusters, you can still probably go get it at a bookstore, I guess. Um, you can buy it at a Barnes and Noble. That's probably the best place to buy it because it really highlights a lot. <laughs> about it <laughs> but yeah for sure. anyway uh adbusters is a magazine that is what it sounds like it's like a bunch of advertisements that the people who make the magazine sort of mess with and you know juxtapose and sort of i don't know chop and screw and all that kind of stuff and then they will publish essays and all that kind of alongside it right and uh that is like maybe the the most sort of consumer friendly version of determinama but uh, yeah, it, it comes around in lots of different ways, and it's a really fun concept because there's a certain sense of play in it. Uh, there's also a sense of, like, I don't know, creativity involved that sometimes you don't get on the left. Um, I mean, this is definitely like a new left phenomenon, right? You can't imagine a mm. bunch of old left sort of uh, <laughs> like... Like st- steelworkers. Exactly. Yeah, like a bunch of 60-year-old steelworkers who are, like, about to retire. They're not going to, like, sit down at the old steelworkers union hall and, like, cut up a magazine and figure out how to make it say something else, right? This is, like, appealing to young people, to the student movement, all that kind of stuff in the late 60s. And I think it's fun. Uh, It's a cool way to maybe think through a little bit about what Jesus is doing, right? He doesn't live in a massive spectacle-ridden society full of TVs or anything, but you can see him kind of uh, metabolizing the symbols that are around him, right? Taking it all in, digesting it, and doing something different. Um, Trying to, uh, to play with those symbols in order to subvert them. So it's like instead of the big war horse coming in, uh, to Jerusalem, surrounded by an entourage of, you know, captives and um, and soldiers. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey that he, like, borrowed, that his disciples stole from somebody. And so, like, the Lord needs this <laughs> and uh, is coming in. And instead of having an entourage of, you know, slaves, uh, Jesus is pronouncing all the slaves are supposed to go free. Um, instead of coming in with a bunch of uh, soldiers in, a, as a, in an occupying show of force, the people themselves are kind of giving Jesus this uh, this people's greeting, a people's welcome with the palms that they would use to protest 
Roman imperialism, right? So Jesus is uh, uh, making fun of uh, Roman um, imperial rule precisely by like, yeah, doing a bit of a, a detournema here to be a little anachronistic, right? Just playing around with those symbols. Yeah, totally. I think it's a great way to connect those things. Um, uh, another bit of street theater that comes to mind, this is this is maybe not street theater, but like interesting sorts of play with symbols and and, uh, and being kind of goofy at the same time while also kind of making a political point. Um, this is, uh, I think, in the chronology that we have here of the things, of, of the examples, uh, this might be the one that comes next, which is a, a pretty big gap. But anyways, in January 2000, uh, so a, a long time ago, but again, around <laughs> the Jesus for President era, uh, what a weird time capsule this episode actually is. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Anyways, in January 2000, the Zapatista Air Force attacked mm. the Mexican federal soldiers. Um, a scary thing. The Zapatistas, uh, if you're not familiar, is a sort of like uh, a leftist, uh, but also indigenous movement in the southern part of Mexico. Uh, they are uh, have ties to sort of like anarchist types of movements they have uh sort of socialist currents within them as well liberation um, theology yeah totally yeah um we've talked about them a handful of times uh, if you've never heard of the zapatistas it's a good google a great rabbit hole to fall to, to fall down but uh the zapatista air force in january 2000 did attack the mexican federal did attack mexican federal soldiers um uh but they did it in a pretty unconventional way um they did it with paper airplanes that's right folks <laughs> the Zapatistas flew um, th- like thousands of paper airplanes um, over a barbed wire fence into a military encampment. And each uh, each of the airplanes did carry a written, quote, missile with it um, that was just like messages and poems for the for the soldiers inside of the uh, inside of the encampment. Uh, one of the one of the missiles that the the uh, the paper airplane carried said this soldiers, we know that poverty has made you sell your lives and souls. I'm also poor, and so are millions. But you're worse off for defending our exploiter. <laughs> Some pretty rough words, <laughs> but uh, a cool thing. I, I, I like this, though, because um, it, it's not street theater in sort of like the protesty sense, but it is theater in, I think, the same way that Jesus is doing it, right? It's like, it's recognizing the um, the tools of empire, right? An air force. And uh, just like Jesus uh, rejects the the big war horse for like a, a donkey, the Zapatistas say, oh, an Air Force? No, we have paper airplanes, right? It's kind of trading in a, a type of like bait and switch symbolism uh, that's kind of playing off one another and, and makes a sort of funny moment. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that's a great example, um, that sort of parody, right? <laughs> Adopting even the, the title Zapatista Air Force is so funny. Uh, it's great. I think uh, that's probably a, actually a very good analogy for what's going on in Palm Sunday. Um, one other thing, this is kind of like, I don't know, a connection that just I made in my brain right this second. So we'll see if it goes anywhere. Uh, I keep telling people that um, I have these insights from Peter Sloterdijk, a weird German philosopher that you shouldn't read. Uh, so I guess <laughs> maybe that's the service I'm providing is uh, I read too much of him. So I'm just going to give you the the highlights. But um, he did write this book that I think is probably actually genuinely interesting called uh, The Critique of Cynical Reason. And it's a book about cynicism and about why it's a political problem. And I don't know about you, but I have been a very cynical person in my life. <laughs> oh, me never. <laughs> yeah, hard not to be. Um, and Slaughterdick has this really interesting sort of uh, analysis of cynicism you know, it is politically debilitating. It's the kind of thing he calls it uh, enlightened false consciousness, which is actually a very funny kind of phrase, right? Mm. Because if you have enlightened consciousness, it shouldn't be false. So uh, I love that kind of parody or uh, paradox. Um, anyway, the whole premise that Sloterdijk sort of puts forward is we live in these societies in capitalism that are like deeply like they force you to distrust everything all the time. Um, but instead of really organizing ourselves to defeat it, uh, we kind of get satisfied with like knowing better than everybody yeah. else. So if you if you know the secret behind everything, it might bum you out, but like at least, you know, better than somebody else. And so mm-hmm. the key is to really, you know, uh, to be cynical. The, the more cynical you are, um, the stronger you are. And I don't know anybody who's ever scrolled Twitter for five minutes. I think it's like <laughs> it's yeah. a pretty big political problem. Um, so Slaughterdike's solution to it, this is where I think he goes a little bit, uh, not maybe in the total direction I'd like to go, but not in a way that is useless either. His solution is not, therefore, we need to have, you know, uh, 
organized sort of labor and all the rest of it to try to destroy these um these uh whatever kind of material basis for cynicism instead he says what we have to do is get in touch with this more ancient tradition that he calls kinicism so in english it's the same thing like cynicism c-y-n-i-c like cynic but in the ancient sense it starts with a k k-y-n-i-c and for Sloterdijk, kinicism is kind of rooted in ancient philosophy of cynicism so diogenes and all these folks Uh, And he traces this kind of ancient tradition of kinicism from Diogenes up through Jesus. He thinks Jesus is in this tradition. Uh, He talks about St. Francis as well as being in this tradition. And what these all have in common is that whereas in modern cynicism, we're all kind of like stuck in our brains, uh, you know, repeating these algorithms of like depression, (laughs) of being smarter about how bad it is all the time. Instead of that, there's this kind of ancient way of being that is way more into like uh, a, a performative act of sort of revealing that the body has its own joy that can't really be contained. So, for example, like Diogenes, uh, the Greek philosopher, there's a famous story of Alexander the Great, like stepping over him. And I forget what he says to Diogenes, but I don't know, something that emperors say to people. And uh, Diogenes says, uh, get out of my son. And that's like, you know, the philosopher's resistance to imperial power. And you kind of get the same thing here with Jesus on Palm Sunday, right? That there's this uh, this kind of bodily way of knowing um, this rootedness or like centeredness that is uh, refusing to be cynical, but instead being cynical, being kind of tied into um, a, a sort of a resistant joy that you can't really get rid of, Right. Um, And you see that in the Christian tradition pop up in St. Francis and other places as well. And I think about that a lot in my own life, right? Like uh, I'm involved in lots of organizations that are trying to do organized things to make the world change, but it's not going to change overnight. And so how do we tap in even to those kind of uh, parts of the Christian tradition that encourage us to like, you know, allow ourselves to live a little bit alternatively, even if we know that that's not really like, you know, the, the sort of conclusion i guess or moral to the story it is still actually a very important way of like both surviving in the world and also maybe there's something to kind of providing you know just that symbol of weirdness that you're a little bit out of step with what's going on yeah i think that's cool um a really uh, a helpful word actually (laughs) people are too cynical in the bad way not in the good way um (laughs) yeah well there is something that's i mean i think that's a good connection to make though especially when it comes to like other types of like street theater especially ones that are maybe like more joyful and interesting (laughs) than uh than uh a a kung fu movie that's been uh redubbed or something a shared interest you and i both have dean is the reverend billy talon who's not he's he's a reverend i guess in the way that it matters but not in like the (laughs) official sense um if you've never heard of the reverend billy talon before let me tell you about him right now. Um, he's pretty famous for a documentary. Dean, what's the, what's the documentary called? What Would Jesus Buy? Uh, yeah, I think that is the title of it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, it's a movie about consumerism and how it's bad. And I like that about it. Um, but really, the <laughs> sub-story beneath it is it follows this guy, Reverend Billy Talon, who in, um, in, in all of the signs and signifiers of his personal body is like a um like a sort of like southern preacher like a really like uh a really a real righteous gems kind of guy honestly yeah yeah um you know he's uh he's ready to sing with the choir he's ready to preach and like kind of get fire and brimstone about it but he doesn't talk about uh he doesn't ever really talk about like jesus i guess he does in some sense he talks about god too but not in like an explicitly christian way i think um but he he's there to tell you that you shouldn't be a, a mindless consumer you shouldn't be a slave to capitalism <laughs> um and uh, a part of the movie at least is is um how he and his sort of like cadre of uh fellow activists organized this like church choir to tour the country and and uh go to these different churches and sing songs about uh how you ought not just like buy things during christmas and like kind of call it a day um, some great street theater. They also they like sing in like department stores and kind of uh, do some like more guerrilla activist kind of moments and they get kicked out of them and get arrested and all kinds of fun stuff like that. But again, another another great example, though, of, of people like living in such a way and performing in such a way where they understand the context, they understand the certain performative aspect and what, what people are expecting out of them. And then they change a bit of the content. So it, it's hijacked and it uh, 
it ends up kind of like cutting against that which they are kind of performing. And it's this really confusing but very cool thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an awesome uh, clip from that documentary. I remember where uh, they're in the Mall of America and it's like a bunch of people in robes and they're going up and down escalators singing songs about like why you shouldn't buy anything. And <laughs> it is the funniest thing in the world because the the sheer aesthetic of it, I think, like makes people do a bit of a double take. Like everyone's like, this must be fine because they're like good Christian people doing a big song or whatever. Yeah. And it's only like like Reverend Billy Talon has a, a megaphone and he just like escalates and gets like more and more explicit and intense. And that's when they finally kick him out. And I love that as well. It's kind of like, you know, appropriating the fact that like nobody's really going to say that you shouldn't preach the gospel in the Mall of America, even if it's weird. But like once you start saying, you know, and you shouldn't buy stuff here, like <laughs> then it's a real issue. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. For real. Well, OK, so we have a few of these examples of like street theater and uh, hijacking out on the table here, um, Jesus included, right? <laughs> um, and I think what's interesting in in these examples is, again, I don't, I'm not here to dunk on Shane Claiborne. I don't think I need to do that. But I, I do want to draw out, I guess, a little bit of a critique is that like um, that in, in these different examples, like there's organization, there's power, and there's like people kind of involved in them. And those people aren't like, backing down they're like escalating i guess and and they're using these like kind of moments of street theater as like things to organize around right and i think that uh i, I don't know you could probably say something really similar in the case of jesus as well right he's coming into jerusalem this very important city um during a really important time of like the jewish calendar that's all there like the the people are like really riled up when Jesus gets there. The disciples are really riled up when they get there. The the wrong people are really riled up when they get there as well. Um, and uh, and there's like you know, I I mean I think just like the church stop shopping, <laughs> like Billy Talon, like the Zapatistas or whatever. There's something similar going on, and that that the action is there to like build power and not just like confront spectacle and leave or something. Um, but I guess the way that I read Shane Claiborne is, and maybe wrongly, I don't know, uh, is that like, you know, the, the thing that we were supposed to take away from the, the Palm Sunday sort of entrance into Jerusalem is that like, Jesus is not the type of president, not the type of ruler, not the type of king that you're expecting. So we should like kind of detach ourselves from that type of political power altogether. Uh, whereas I think the. I think the real way to read it is that this is, you know, uh, this is an organizing tool. This is like this is an expression of real power, but and not something that you're just going like, to walk away from afterwards. Yeah, I think, too, that's really the key. Like we were saying earlier, I guess the the key is to see, well, what what is Jesus sort of opening or what space is getting cleared by doing something wild like that? You know, it's like when Reverend Billy Talon goes to the Mall of America and does this big thing. Um, a lot of people I'm sure who were shopping that day just went home and were like, I saw this wild thing happen at the mall. I've never seen anything like it. And that's kind of the end of it. You know, <laughs> it's like something they talk about during the day. Uh, but you have to find a way to build a bridge between those kind of events and the next sort of, uh, step, right. Organizing, figuring out how to actually, uh, keep, keep the momentum going. Um, you know, Jesus follows up that action with the the next sort of bit of street theater of turning over the tables in the temple. Um, but by the time you get to the book of Acts, right, Jesus goes, uh, gets beamed up to heaven. Um, the response of the early Christians is actually like not to go out and do a bunch of street theater um, or not even necessarily to like totally drop out, but it's to like form uh, a community, right? Uh, a primitive communist community sharing everything in common. Uh, holding all those those things together, and that is like an organized, coordinated thing to do. Uh, and I guess that's sort of where Jesus for President uh, got me excited as a teen, but leaves me a little bit um, with lots of questions as a person who is not a teen anymore, um, right? Like, what what's the kind of actionable piece? And I, I have a lot of respect for someone like Shane Claiborne, who does live in like an intentional community, or at least did at that time, and that's all very cool. Um, but at the end of the day, like capitalism is an exploitative uh, political economy that is totally fine to allow people to live in some intentional communities at the margins of its society. Like if we really want to confront the empire, you know, like if what Jesus is doing is kind of showing that imperial power doesn't have the 
the last word and showing us too that you can make fun of it and kind of clear a space to think about a different kind of kingdom, then that means also thinking about the the material basis for capitalism, which, which is not just the stories that we tell. Like it is certainly involved in the stories that we tell about ourselves and empower and, and so on. But it's also the material way in which, you know, we go to work every day and like take a paycheck or don't and stay on the job or don't. And I think that's the piece that's often missing in progressive Christian circles that uh, lots of Christians are very good at saying the stories we tell are bad um, and we should tell the the biblical story instead. uh, But they're not so good in my experience at kind of asking that that structural question underneath. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's it's frustrating because. You know, I mean, to to build the Church of Acts, I mean, it would take it would take that structural piece, right? It would take it would take the work of like organizing and community building to really do it. But that's not the part of the story that we tell, or it's not the part that we kind of like conceptualize. Um, you know, in these types of like movements and street theater, and especially with regards to Christianity and the ways that maybe it falls short sometimes, um, I've been thinking a lot about like, um, well, I don't know, like what people's movements look like and the ways that power kind of gets built within them. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of my life, as you can tell from this podcast, reading about weird French guys. And uh, I've taken a, a detour lately. I've started reading about uh, not weird and not French people at all. Um, lately, I've been really interested in um, these a handful of different organizations in the United States that kind of spring up that are extremely radical, but not like uh, explicitly Marxist or socialist even. Um, uh, throughout the, like the 1980s, there's a handful of these, um, organizations that pop up throughout the country called like the union of the homeless and pretty fascinating activism actually. Um, and I think what I find really fascinating about these stories, this is completely out of left field, by the way, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of throwing this out here right now, (laughs) but like, uh, what's really interesting about like the, the union of the homeless or some of these related organizations is that like, they really rely deeply on the organizing power of people. And, like, that's it um, because, like, that's really all anyone has is sort of, like, their physical presence and ability to be in a place and kind of, like, talk to people. Um, and the, when they talk about power and they talk about organizing, um, you know, of course, like, theatrics can be a part of it. And um, I think sometimes they were. But uh, power, uh, as they conceptualize it, like, politically, it comes out of those people who are organizing to, to actually do something. Um and, you know, the cool street theater stuff is always sort of like um, can be a piece of that organizing. And I guess like that's great. Um, but I, I, I would hate <laughs> I would hate to like um, walk away too quickly from the street theater as like a cool event that makes us think differently about the world without recognizing that like those are those are opportunities to actually like, build power and to kind of pull people in and to like, you know, to, to do more. Mm hmm. Yeah, I guess the like the Zapatista Air Force maybe is the way of kind of squaring it all right. It's like um, a very funny joke, uh, a very cool piece of kind of artistic expression and, and performance, but it's also tied into an ongoing actual political struggle. And the goal is to conscientize the soldier, right? To be like, you're poor, I'm poor, and like so much the worse for you because you're on that side of the fence. Um and maybe that's it, right? Trying to think through what what does it mean to tie those um, those spectacles to something that's really going on. I think you know even the example that you brought out of uh, the union of the homeless and stuff like that. Like uh, in Toronto, there are all kinds of interesting organizations that uh, do really good work organizing people who are not just workers, um, like the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, for example, which is kind of a similar sort of thing. And uh, there's all kinds of sort of like, I don't think it would be right to call them, you know, theater uh, or guerrilla theater because they're not, you know, performing anything on purpose. But there's this kind of performative moment of them like, you know, occupying like all the space outside the mayor's condo or something. Right. And like just causing a big scene. Like that's the idea, like get a, a bunch of attention on this particular area so that you can then uh, get an excuse to talk, right, to the press, to media, to other people who are around, all that kind of stuff. Um, the same one, like, the police are clearing out an encampment, right? Like, it's about uh, creating a big a big scene, a big ruckus around all of that um, so that you can not let that just happen, right? Uh, but the key is to plug those folks into some kind of organizing structure over time. Otherwise, uh, you know, you just get these flashes of activity 
Um, and that's what successful people's movements do. They they connect the dots of those flashes, right? They they sustain all the energy that's happening in between. So I don't know. This is, like you said, maybe getting far afield from Palm Sunday, but <laughs> I guess the key is to be like, um, as we think about Palm Sunday, as we're going to church thinking about Palm Sunday, it's like, what space does that open up yeah. maybe in our brains to think differently? And how do we... Uh, how do we connect um, that kind of sort of signal that Jesus is giving us to, you know, some other means of, of organizing? Yeah, I mean, it, it is and it's not a far afield from Palm, Palm Sunday because I guess like uh, the the impulse within me is, is thinking like I'm going to hear a sermon or whatever on Palm Sunday that's probably saying something that's just like, you know, Jesus, you expect this king, but he's actually this different kind of person. Uh, he, you know, if we kind of follow Jesus, we end up like uh, think about political power differently. We think about um, all kinds of things differently. And I guess I just like hate I hate the idea that anyone would leave it at that point only <laughs> that that kind of bumps mm-hmm. me out. So I guess uh, to me, the the uh, the connection to like do, uh, organizing, I think, is the is the piece that really makes me like feel like it's worth something. Um, so mm-hmm. there you go, mm-hmm. folks. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Support us. The Lord needs it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the Lord does need it. Send us your donkeys. <laughs> um, our music is by Amoria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Stop.